afternoon, Radio Free Brooklyn. It's 1 p.m. and you're listening to Objection to the Rule. Coming up, the president made a bad situation worse this week with his comments after Charlottesville. Is this the final straw in his presidency? What could possibly come next, right? And now that it seems that more have become aware of the racist underpinnings of this country, what's going to happen about it? Are there going to be any changes? We'll talk about that later. Plus, Steve Bannon is out. What does that mean for the president's agenda? And is it a concern that he went directly back to Breitbart? Plus, we'll talk with Jeff Jones from the Fair Fares campaign to explore how access to public transportation could help some of our more disenfranchised New Yorkers. And finally, we're joined by guest reporter Ashika Jegru, who covers protest movements. He's going to give us some insight on this whole Antifa movement that everybody's been talking about. So you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Objection to the Rule. How's it going? I have been messing up all weekend turning on microphones. We just got our fourth microphone back. So I've been turning on the third microphone for everyone. So now people can hear you, Ash. How's Yay. it going? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Objection to the Rule. It is 102 here in our studio in Bushwick. We are live and we have a special guest in the studio, Ashika Jagru. Thanks for joining Hi, us. Hi. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. So we go back to the J School Times and Word. it has been an interesting couple of weeks in politics in social justice so we're going to talk all about that over the next hour but the big news this week really is the fallout from the president's comments on charlottesville and the massive counter protests against white supremacy across the country last week we talked about how the president's response fell short he made another response later that specifically condemned white supremacy and the kkk but then he seemed to retract going back to his original statements about blaming both sides. And he specifically came out to talk about how he was sad about the monuments being removed. So we're going to talk a little bit about those answers, I guess those responses that he made in the press and some of the fallout from that. But here's a little bit of those remarks. The alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right, do they have any semblance of guilt? Let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any problem? I think they do. You had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. You had a group, you had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit, and they were very, very violent. Do you think that the, what you call the alt-left is the same as neo-Nazis? I, oh, those people, all of those people, excuse me, I've condemned neo-Nazis. I've condemned many different groups, but not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. So, excuse me, and you take a look at some of the groups and you see 
and you know it if you were honest reporters, which in many cases you're not, but many of those people were there to protest the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. So this week it's Robert E. Lee. I noticed that Stonewall Jackson's coming down. I wonder, is it George Washington next week? And is it Thomas Jefferson the week after? You know, you, all, you really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? But they were there to protest. Excuse me. You take a look the night before. They were there to protest the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. Are you putting what you're calling the alt-left and white supremacists on the same moral plane? I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. <laughs> Side, sir, you said there was hatred, there was violence on both sides. Are, are well, I do think there's blame. Yes, I think there's blame on both sides. So you look at you sides? look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it. And you don't have any doubt about it either. And, only and, 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 and if you reported it accurately, you would say. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down, excuse me, are we going to take down, are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue? Because he was a major slave owner. Now we're going to take down his statue. So you know what? It's fine. You're changing history. You're changing culture. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Now, in the other group also, you had some fine people, but you also had troublemakers, and you see them come with the, with the black outfits and with the helmets and with the baseball bats. You got a, you had a lot of bad you had a lot of bad people in the other group too. Treated unfairly, sir. I'm sorry. I just didn't understand what you were saying. You were saying the press has treated white nationalists unfairly. No, I just didn't understand what you were saying. No. There were people in that rally, and I looked the night before. If you look, there were people protesting very quietly the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. I'm sure in that group there were some bad ones. The following day, it looked like they had some rough, bad people. Neo-Nazis, uh, white nationalists, whatever you want to call them. But you had a lot of people in that group that were there to innocently protest, and very legally protest, because, you know, I don't know if you know, they had a permit. The other group didn't have a permit. So I only tell you this. There are two sides to a story. I thought what took place was a horrible moment for our country. A horrible moment. But there are two sides to the country. So that two sides narrative 
has been coming up multiple times. There's both sides. Sometimes it's many sides. There's all these sides. I'm, I want to know first what you thought of the president's characterization of what happened. Ash, how do you think he presented it? And do you think that he presented it fairly? Um, well, I'm not surprised about what he said. I mean, I think from the beginning, before during the campaign, we knew he was a, he's a fascist pretty much. Mm-hmm. And I don't I'm not surprised what he spews fascist apologetics when he sees mm-hmm. something like Charlottesville. Uh, the funny thing about the both sides and many sides thing is that only maybe two or three weeks ago, a lot of like centrist liberals were using the same exact argument against people to their left mm-hmm. uh, saying, well, you know, if Antifa didn't come out. Uh, these right wingers wouldn't get the attention that they so desperately crave. There's violence on both sides. You have to get and Peter Beinhardt uh, actually wrote an article for the Atlantic mm-hmm. talking about the violence of the alt left or whatever, the violence of the left or whatever. And pretty much uh, saying the exact same thing. Trump says that, you know, that Antifa drives the violence as well as the right wingers and that there's violence on both sides and that, you know, both sides need to be condemned. But then when Trump came out and said, you know, there are violence, there's violence on many sides, there's violence on both sides. It, be, it became kind of like taboo to say that almost now. Like people are very reluctant to say well, uh, both a, sides. That's a really interesting point that, you know, and, and a lot of, you know, the rhetoric shifting to kind of accommodate who we want to target at any given time. That's not something that's new, but it is interesting as we've come through, you know, this election period and you see this idea of the left kind of getting picked apart, essentially, like, what does it mean? Who are these groups? What does it mean to be far left versus centrist left? What does it mean to be liberal? Um, you know, and and so we're exploring kind of what these things mean. And we're finding that there's a lot of kind of discrepancy. Um, I'm curious, you know, how do you think that you talking about the election? How do you think that the failure of like the Democratic Party to kind of identify these issues more strongly and not paint them as just this very far, very fringe um, activity. How do you think that affected how this played out and what we're seeing now? Yeah. I mean, I mean, personally, I have no faith in the Democratic Party or the party system in general, obviously. Yeah. But um, I think the Democrats kind of shoot themselves in the, in the foot when they uh, pretty much don't like take on things like single payer health care and stuff like take on class issues. I mean, Steve Bannon, when he just got kicked out recently, mm-hmm. he said um, he was glad about the Charlottesville fallout because while the Democrats are talking about race or whatever, he'll talk about, quote unquote, economic nationalism. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the right wing, the fascists know that there's a class problem in this country. There's class inequality. And they're using that to their advantage, just like fascist movements of the past have used that. So is it that idea that, you know, these kind of racial divisions, these social divisions are that tool that these fascist groups are using? Or is it deeper than that? Um. Well, I think there are uh, natural contradictions that come about from capitalism. I, yeah. I mean, and and fascists use these things, this discontent, this alienation that a lot of these white men feel, a lot of white people feel, uh, this uh, feeling of disempowerment. Mm-hmm. And they, they use this to their advantage. And there are solutions to these problems from the left. I mean, yeah, I mean, just, you know, attacking class, attacking poverty, attacking the fact that people can't get the health care they need. Um, just, I mean, police brutality is another thing. Um, if we could solve these problems, these really deep problems uh, with real solutions instead of just, you know, more racism or kicking out the immigrants or uh, making letting police be more brutal to black and brown people and stuff like that. That's their solutions. Mm-hmm. If the left or the liberals could come up with real solutions, except, you know, whining about how Trump is bad and that he's colluding with Russia or whatever. Uh, I think there could be some pushback. There could be some some really 
harsh blows to the to the fascist movement, pretty much. But it's not. It seems like that's that is not the game. The goal. It seems like there's another goal. Um, on the part of, I guess, the Democratic Party. Yeah. It doesn't seem like that's the goal. I'm curious about this, the the Confederate monuments that have become the center of conversation. You know, there are 718, according to the, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, around 718 of these monuments all around the country. There are over 1,500 symbols of the Confederacy around the country, whether it's schools or army bases or streets named for these generals. Um, there's discussion about what this means to get them removed and whether it is a kind of a band-aid on a larger problem. What do you think that removing these statues will do, if anything, to fix the unrest, the healing, you know, the the, the issues that we have in this country with race or with inequality? Uh, I mean, it's, it's just scratching the surface of, of the problems, obviously. I like a lot of people. I don't want people to think that once we get rid of like Trump or and once we take down all the Confederate statues and monuments, mm-hmm. that racism is gone, poof, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. White supremacy is done with. I mean, there are a lot of other forms of white supremacy that we've been talking about. Police brutality, right. uh, gentrification. Uh, there's, I mean, there's what? much. Yeah. That, well, that, yeah, that, you, that's a really interesting point. And that's something that I've kind of seen as we focus, we fixate on this very like, visual very kind of visceral notion of white supremacy these men with these torches these Mm -hmm. violent you know white nationalists but there are so many different manifestations of white supremacy in our culture how do we connect people from the very violent to the normal everyday you know microaggressions or the systems that exist how do we get people to make that leap to understand that those are the same um i mean for me personally one of the things that really made the connection really um, clear for me is like, I guess, getting on the streets and looking at the way police interact with Black Lives Matter, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the police are the frontline force for white supremacy in this country. It isn't the fascists with torches or whatever. Mm-hmm. They work hand in hand, uh, but the police are the ones beating black and brown protesters down the street, throwing people in jail, facilitating a mass incarceration system that keeps black people enslaved to this day, pretty much. Um, so just seeing that up, up close, and I remember recently, um, this girl from Black Lives Matter Greater New York, uh, they did a report back from Charlottesville maybe a day or two ago, and she even said that when she was on the front lines at Emanc- Emancipation Park, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. uh, she saw that the cops were right there while the white supremacists, the fascists, were pretty much targeting her, trying to throw stuff at her, and they were just watching, and there were times where they would point guns at her, pretty much. And the cops would just stand there and watch. And she was like, if I had got shot in there, the cops would have just sat there and watched it all. And she even said at certain times they were taking turns, throwing stuff at the leftist protesters, at the Black Lives Matter protesters. She was like, it was clear, crystal clear right there that they work hand in hand. And um, I mean, and those are the cops on a daily basis who are arresting black people for broken windows offenses or jumping the turnstile or any number of things that they arrest black and brown people for. That idea that, you know, the the way that the police reacted to Charlottesville, the ones that were on the ground there versus how other police departments have reacted to other protests, other manifestations, ones that are made up of more people of color, more black people. There was a stark difference and it was very noticeable. You didn't hear about the wide number of arrests or detainments from, you know, the white nationalists that were participating, that were enacting violence. You heard about the one guy that you know, killed someone with a car being arrested, but you didn't hear about, you know, anybody that was in inciting or enacting violence, you know, being being detained. 
And that is a it, it is an exact point to show the disparity in how these things are treated. I want to switch gears a little bit, and I'm curious about how we're in this period now where we are faced with talking about racism, we're faced with talking about, at least on a surface level, some of these ills that have been a part of this country since its inception. Um, I'm curious, from your perspective, Violet, what have you seen in your, you know, in discussions about just how people are reacting to what happened and is any of it surprising or shocking or kind of what are, what are your thoughts on how the country has responded to what happened? I think, uh, I think people are, uh, attached to these symbols, um, for more than what they are. They represent identity to them, even though that's an identity that's not really been, uh, acceptable for already like more than a hundred years. If we, I think, okay, so like symbols have a value, even symbols of negativity. So like putting them in context, like having a, uh, um, a way to understand what symbols of the Confederacy were and like the violence they represent is useful. But, I, I don't think taking statues out are is the same thing as erasure. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I, I'm beyond that. We have a place where we can't talk about history. We can't talk about the history of these statues, but not acknowledge that we don't teach the proper history about these statues. We don't teach the proper history about the Confederacy. We don't teach the proper history about slave ownership and the slave trade as an institution in this country and how much effect it had on building America And so I feel like if we're going to have the discussion about history, we need to have the discussion about why our history is lacking in a well-rounded understanding of really how America began and all of the negative and, you know, genocidal ways that this country came to be. But we're not ready to acknowledge that yet. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, these statues don't make history any clearer. They obscure history, for, if anything. I mean, if, you really want, if, if you're going to put forward that we need to keep these up for history's sake or whatever. Yeah. And, I mean, historically, if you want to be historically correct, these were, all these statues, Confederate statues, were put up in reaction towards, you know, black people trying to get their rights pretty much and like as a spit in the face of black people trying to get their rights if you look at the the data of when many of them were erected and this was you know the splc put this out as well there was a peak during the jim crow era so the early 1900s and then there was another peak during the civil rights era Mm -hmm. so it wasn't about commemorating history it's almost like we wanted to you know memorialize these scary things in you know, black and brown communities. It's like a reminder, you know, it's like we, we are in control here. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of what it was saying. So the other news that happened this week, we're, we could talk about that forever. And I feel like that story is going to continue as the fallout continues. But another thing that happened in the administration was the ouster of chief strategist, Steve Bannon. And honestly, this is like, we talked about how we were seeing, um, we we seen this on the horizon as well. Um, it was something that probably was going to happen a couple of weeks ago, as many people have reported these discussions were happening. But it was interesting in the same press conference where President Trump talked about Charlottesville, he also made a comment about Steve Bannon. He was asked by a reporter um, what they thought of Bannon. So here is that clip, and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. And about it. Can you tell us broadly what your do you have still have confidence? Well, in Steve? we'll see. And look, look, I like Mr. Bannon. He's a friend of mine, but. 
Mr. Bannon came on very late. You know that. I went through 17 senators, governors, and I won all the primaries. Mr. Bannon came on very much later than that. Uh, and I like him. He's a good man. Uh, he is not a racist. I can tell you that. He's a good person. He actually gets a very unfair press in that regard. But we'll see what happens with Mr. Bannon. But he's a good person. And I think the press treats him, frankly, very unfairly. It's always the press treating people unfairly. That's that's always a thing. But, you know, it, even in those words, it really seemed like he knew what was up. Like that seemed like he's like, I'm just going to say these things. But like, I can't I can't say what I want to say. Did anybody else? Did you either of you get that impression? Um, it's funny how all these people aren't racist they in Trump's eyes. No yeah. one's a racist no in Trump's eyes. There are no there are no Nazis or there's nothing Ex- wrong. Except those white supremacists. <laughs> they are bad. But who are they? Right. Yeah, but yeah exactly. He he never points, yeah, exactly. I mean, that Unite the Right rally was a call explicitly for all these fascist groups. I mean, there were no quote unquote good people at that. There were, I mean, the signs and everything that were submitted, like as far as like trying to get people to come to this, it it pointed to these very white supremacist, white nationalist ideals. Like it's hard to escape that. Yeah, And with Bannon, (laughs) I mean, Bannon hasn't, wasn't a latecomer to this. Breitbart has been riding for Trump for the longest time and they are like, the brown shirts and the right wing press, they have always been like straight up rabid, foaming mouth fascists. Um, they've been on board since the beginning and they are racist to the core. Yeah. And some of the things that have come out of that publication have been very inflammatory. And so it's it's very interesting that it, it's like a recategorization of the truth. Right. It's like it's almost you know to the point of gaslighting. It's like we're trying to paint this picture that all of us have seen the, the evidence to be the contrary, but this is the picture that we want to paint. Um, what do you think will be the effect, the impact, if any, of Bannon now being outside of the administration? Or is he really outside of the administration? Uh, I think, like, I've heard this from a number of uh, different places, but, like, uh, there's a sense to which each thing that each new thing that uh, Trump comes out with, you can sort of like tell by what he says, who was whispering in his ear at that Mm -hmm. moment. Uh, And it's like very clear, like the, um, the immigration ban, the Muslim ban, um, a lot of the, like the worst things that he says and does have like, have hints of notes of Bannon in Mm -hmm. them. But you know, at his core, he's Trump. It's not like he's just like a, a blank slate. He's mm-hmm. he is a man with his own uh, ideas and thoughts, and so we'll probably. I don't know. It might be less overt, but it's still going to be the same tune. I think. Yeah, Trump doesn't need Bannon to be a fascist himself. Really, I mean, it, it, and I'm, and I don't think Bannon's really out per se. I mean, he's going to be. He's head at Breitbart still. That's the. The propaganda wing yeah. of the Trump administration, pretty much. I mean, he's still working for the president, even if he's not in the administration. Isn't that thing. almost more of a worry? You know, him going from the administration, having a very senior role, being, you know, kind of the right hand man of Trump and being very involved in that piece and then going to lead this, you know, quote unquote, news organization. Um Should we be worried? Like, I, I mean, I what I, I don't know. It's almost like now you have even more information about how the inside works. And it's like when you have that information, you're able to spin a lot better. Um, Do you think that his involvement, having been involved in the government, will affect somehow what he puts out at Breitbart? No, I think he'll be the same old Bannon, quite frankly. But uh, just more, I guess, 
I'm not sure if he even be more unleashed, quite frankly, because he was pretty bad in the yeah. damn administration. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the difference is, except superficially. Okay. Uh, quite frankly, uh, I mean, I remember when he got kicked off the National Security Council or whatever. Everyone was like, "Oh, Bannon's gone. We're, the witch is dead," pretty much. And like, uh, no, and he was still in there. Happen. Yeah, he's still in there. And I'm sure he'll still have conversations with Trump. They'll be on the phone with each other, talking to each other. And like Trump said it himself, he loves Bannon. He likes the guy. Uh, and he's a straight up Nazi himself too. So he has regular conversation. He likes the Nazi guy. So it's not. But he's not no gone. Nazis. There are no Nazis. Yeah, there are no Nazis. Are no Nazis. Though, of course not. No. No. Wow. It, it's you know it. It's very. I don't even want to. It's interesting. Is not the word. It's just been a lot of. A lot of things that we were like hoping wouldn't happen that we were looking and we were seeing like, oh, this is possible. But no, maybe possible. No. Yes. Yes. It's all <laughs> actually. Yeah. It's all it's all happening. So that's you know, that that takes something from there. You should take something from that. We're going to continue the conversation in just a moment. We're going to play a little music, but I want to let everybody know to help RFB get to South by Southwest. You can vote on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash South by Southwest. We want to take our show on the road and present the great work we do at RFB to the people at South by Southwest. So share the word. Help us get there by voting. Again, you can do that at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash SXSW or South by Southwest. You have until August 25th to vote. So share often. Let people know. Get the word out and vote for us to go to South by Southwest. We're going to play a little bit of music and we'll be back in just a moment right here on Objection to the Rule. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be the heavens no man no weapon formed against yes glory is destined everyday women and men become legends sins that go against our skin become blessings the movement is a rhythm to us freedom is like religion to us Justice is juxtaposition in us Justice for all just ain't specific enough One son died, the spirit is revisiting us True and living, living in us Resistance is us That's why Rosa sat on the bus That's why we walked through Ferguson with our hands up When it go down, we woman and man up They say stay down and we stand up Shots be on the ground, the camera panned up King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours, oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be
man, woman, and child. Even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd. They march with the torch, we gon' run with it now. Never look back, we done gone hundreds of miles. From dark roads, heroes, to become a hero. Facing the league of justice, his power was the people. Enemy is lethal, a king became regal. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a bald ego. The biggest weapon. It's to stay peaceful, we sing Our music is the cuts that we bleed through Somewhere in the dream we had an epiphany Now we right the wrongs in history No one can win a war individually It take the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy Welcome to the story we call victory The coming of the Lord, my eyes have seen the glory One day, when the glory comes It will be always on our minds in New York is public transit. When's the subway going to come? Is it going to break down in the tunnel? Or is any number of other calamities going to befall us while we're trying to get from point A to point B in the city? Something else that we might be thinking about is how much it's all going to cost. Those 275 can add up pretty quickly, especially if you don't have a lot to spare. The Community Service Society's annual Unheard Third survey found that about one in four low-income New Yorkers regularly has problems affording public transit. And that's a lot. That's Jeff Jones, Director of Marketing and Design for the Community Service Society. We spoke with him this week about Fair Fares, CSS's new initiative in partnership with the Riders Alliance to combat that issue. Fair Fares will provide half-price metro cards to New Yorkers living at and below the poverty line. Here's Jeff on the campaign. And so Nancy Rankin, our Vice President for Policy Research and Advocacy, um, reached out to the Writers Alliance, which is a nonprofit that is a transit-focused uh, grassroots nonprofit. Um, and we kind of formed a partnership and launched this campaign for Fair Fares. It's an interesting time right now. So we pushed really hard through this last budget cycle to get it in the city budget. We got, I mean, our coalition grew and grew. We had a ton of, uh, of support. We have, what is it? I think we have 41 of, uh, excuse me, 40 of the 51 city council members supported for the five borough presidents supported, the controller, the public advocate. We have like editorial endorsements from the Times, the Daily News, El Diario, a bunch of papers. I mean, it's just been huge amounts of support. And we got, uh, we came very close to getting a pilot in the city budget this year, but unfortunately it didn't happen. 
Now, with Mayor de Blasio's new plan for the subway and its millionaire's tax to raise revenue, it looks like it's a good moment for fair fares. But when their initiative might get passed isn't clear yet. Well, that's a big question. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a great idea. It's when we originally put out our report back in uh, 2016 in April, we said, hey, there's a number of different ways we could pay for this. Uh, and this idea of a millionaire's tax was one of those ideas. Um, we think it's great. Um, the mayor seems to feel very confident that this is something that Albany would be willing to pass. But this is something. This is a state. This is something the state would have to do. So, uh, you know, outside of him lobbying, uh, you know, the the governor and the state folks, we don't know. Um, the governor has recently come out talking about congestion pricing as a way to fix the subway, and so we're really hopeful that the governor will include fair fares in whatever proposal he puts out to do fix the kind of infrastructure and other needs of the subway. Um, and so. You know, we want to get it done. We're happy whichever way it goes, um, it should get done. We also feel that that the mayor – so one of the things that we started with is the mayor has the ability to do this. The mayor doesn't need – despite the fact that the MTA is funded by the uh, – is controlled by the state, the mayor can actually classify a discount for a group of people. He can say, all right, we're going to provide a discount for – low-income New Yorkers, much like we have discounts for seniors or high school students. Um, and he has the ability to do that. And with the budget that we have and how much this costs, we think that regardless of the millionaire's tax, regardless of what the governor does, this should be done, and he could do it. Um, so we're kind of still looking at – right now it's this kind of let's see who's going to kind of prevail in the best plan to work on the subways, and we just want to make sure that fair fares is in that discussion and is part of every plan that comes out. Lots of New Yorkers live at and below the poverty line, which is $24,000 a year for a family of four. New Yorkers covered by fair fares would include undocumented immigrants because immigration status isn't a factor for income verification right now. The goal of this is to help low-income New Yorkers access transit. And in a city like New York, if you can't access public transit, you can't do a lot of things, right? You can't get to work. You can't get to your doctor. If, you, if you're having to choose between, and we've, we've spoken to, to folks, and we have stories up on our campaign website um, of uh, people who literally are choosing between, like, getting a meal and getting a, a Metro card. Each person would save $726 a year um, in MetroCard costs by this plan. And when you're living at the poverty level, that's a big that's a big chunk of change. Um, and so, like I said, in our survey, we saw that like one in four New Yorkers said they couldn't afford it. This would really uh, help. Of course, it won't cover everyone who could use the reduced fare. People that make a little bit more than that at 130% or 200% of poverty in New York City, that's still not a big income, and that can still be a big challenge with uh, accessing the subway. Um, this, like any sort of uh, plan to, to to help, this is what we feel is going to be a great a great start, a great thing that we can do. Um, ideally, we would love to see more people covered by it, um, but this is covering the people that need it the most now. Mayor de Blasio, um, you know, ran on this idea of the tale of two cities, the, you know, being progressive, really helping the, the working poor. This is a huge 
way to help people in poverty. It's not just about like getting transit. It saves money. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a poverty issue. It's, it's a way to lift people up, get them on transit, save them money. Uh, what we're doing next, what the, what the campaign is focused on, is really just making sure that this issue is part of the discussion around what's going on with the subways, is part of the discussion of, around the mayor's re-election. It's part of the discussion right now that this is something that needs to happen. That was Jeff Jones. Thank you so much, Violet, for that interview. I'm curious because this seems like a great program. It seems like it's going to benefit the people that really need it. Um, we know that you know, 275 can be a burden for a lot of people. And, you know, you have to do that, you think, 10 times a week if you're going to work a five-day work week. You know, that's a lot of money. So how do they plan to get this into, you know, in front of all of the, you know, people that need to make this action? Kind of what is their next step to bring visibility to this plan and get people on board? Right. Uh, One thing that Jones said is that they've already had... um, They've had head nods from a lot of the people who are making these decisions. So uh, the mayor is one. Governor Cuomo is another. G- Governor Cuomo has talked about um, congestion pricing, adding uh, adding that to um, to revenue to uh, to put out for public transit, and that's something that fair fares could use as well. Um, also, uh, but they might not need as much support. Uh, as they're getting because um, the mayor could do it himself. He could sign a bill. Um, the way the uh, MTA works is that um, uh, they can divert funds for um, for things like this, for projects like this. So um, it's not clear what would make the mayor or the governor or both say yes, but if they do, it could happen quickly. And I feel like whoever does kind of take the reins of this and champions it, um, it's going to be a win for them. So I'm wondering if it matters, you know, if it kind of matters who the win would be biggest for. Would it be a bigger win for Cuomo? Would it be a bigger win for de Blasio? I wonder if that's a part of this decision making, because this pre- this problem has been presented out there and this solution is now available. And I'm sure that as people are forming their kind of campaign platforms, discussing their campaign platforms, you know, we have de Blasio up for re-election this year and Cuomo up for re-election next year, um, the MTA is going to be a big thing. It's going to be a big topic of discussion. Uh, would following this plan, in your opinion, um, be the best decision or is there a better alternative out there? Is there something that maybe would apply to more New Yorkers or you know, give more benefit to, to you know, people that are outside of that very high poverty level? Right. As far as I know, this is the most inclusive plan out mm-hmm. there. Um, and uh, if there's a if there's something else in the works, uh, it doesn't have as much publicity and it doesn't have as doesn't have legs in the same way right now. But I feel like if this um, I'll venture to say that if something like this goes through, that opens the door for a more inclusive plan, which is needed. Absolutely. Now, Ashley, I'm curious what your thoughts are on a plan like this. Do you think that it really will have the impact on lower income New Yorkers, on people that are the most in need for you know, lower subway fares? Do you think that it will have the impact that it's kind of designed to have? Or is there going to be some fallout? What are your kind of perspective? On? Um, I think the fair fares thing is a good kind of reform, which, well, like you said, leads the way to leading to more inclusive um, projects. But um, we can't depend on these politicians to do yeah. this for us. And, and 
what's been left out is this is a race issue as well because many of the most of the people who are arrested for jumping the turnstile are black and brown people, poor mm-hmm. black and brown people. This is a way that the cops, one of the most arrestable broken windows offenses is hop, getting people for hopping the turnstile pretty much. Mm-hmm. And over 80% are black and brown. And I got to give a shout out to um, the Swipe It Forward campaign, hashtag Swipe It Forward. These are basically a, a coalition of activist groups who go out to you know major train stations and swipe people in for free. Mm-hmm. And also tell people like, if you have an unlimited Metro card, and you're walking out the subway, swipe in somebody, swipe and in, especially if they're a poor black and brown person. Absolutely. And it's a, you know, it's to clear, clarify, there is not a law against that. It's completely yeah, it's legal, completely legal. to do yeah, that. Yeah. It, you know, there is, there are laws about selling Metro cards and swipes and things like that. But if you gift a swipe to somebody, that's completely free and it prevents them from getting one of those crazy charges for jumping a turnstile. You know, I've, we were talking and preparing for this segment. There is a whole group of, enforcement agents that work with the MTA that work on the SBS buses and they will come and you know it happened to me today it happened to me yesterday and they come through the bus and they look for if you have your SBS ticket and if you don't they pull you off of the bus and make kind of you know they try to do it quietly but you're getting pulled off the bus so it's a little bit of a spectacle and then they let the bus go on and you have to prove that either you purchased a metric or a pass or you have a metro card and you know it's it seems to me like it's an overbearing policy for something like that. I can't imagine that there would be so much loss on SBS buses that it would warrant having all of these officers to work to patrol SBS buses. Like, I feel like that money could be exactly, used yeah. to well, make fares cheaper. Yeah, instance. exactly. Um, <laughs> or arresting all these black and brown people for jumping a turnstile could be better used to giving them free Metro cards and like letting people get on the damn train for you free. Think about you know how much, you know, how much an officer makes hourly. Yeah. Like that could probably buy a weekly pass for some people. I mean, recently the NYPD uh, invested like over $50 million in a pretty much at a propaganda campaign to increase diversity in their ranks pretty much to make us uh-huh. like, Oh, we need more black and brown cops and blah, blah, blah. Imagine if that 50 million went to like not arresting people for hopping the damn turnstile. million yeah. dollars. Or Two years ago, there was yeah. more than $100 million invested in the police just to get 1,300 new cops, new cops, to also arrest black and brown people for small things like that. All that money could have been used to give poor people a ride to work, a ride to and from and work. we know that the, the police budget is the highest expenditure yeah. that we have in New York City. It's, it's comparable the to the whole military budget of North Korea. Wow. It's an army. It's an army we have, and we... Like just like the military, U.S. military always gets its funding somehow. There's never a question about where's the money going to come from. With the NYPD, it's the same thing. Well, they always get their money. They always get what they and want. And you know when they're not getting what they want, or when they don't think they're going to get the money, they launch a public campaign. Yes, yes, to exactly. Get that money. Yes. So we're going to continue this conversation. We come back. We're going to play a little bit of music, and then I want to hear from your perspective. What's it all about? Are Are we getting the story right about the? anti-fascist movements are we getting the story that we need to get um i don't think we are so i'm curious to find out what you think we're right here on objection to the rule you can always find us online at twitter objection free bk or on facebook objection radio free brooklyn we'll be right back in just a moment right here on objection to the rule Thought, 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 thought. 
Which side are you on, yeah. boy? Which side are you Silence on, Silence is unappreciated. Which side are I'm gonna go ahead and take to this disrespect. Which side are you on, Silence is death, yes. Which side are you on, Get off the fence, son. Or against us, gotta decide where you stand. There's an angel and a demon inside of every man. It's completely up to you. Get in the upper hand. Uh, Which side are I make you music on for the people. Survival down the roof was we confusing it with evil. When I say the people, I don't just mean the ones that agree with me. I'm on the side of the people, regardless of who they seem to be following. Which side are you on? Get off the fence, son. Making sense, nothing is sacred when you suffer in to pay your rent. Celebrities be making money off the powerless, they silence in the face of injustice, just cowardice. I roll with a crew that ain't never scared of the challenges. We don't wait for the tragedy, freedom is the catalyst. We don't call in the cavalry, we the leaders. We waiting on you, standing up for justice to trust us. This is your favorite song. They want us brought up in more legal drama than law and order. And the streets police is on trial, and rappers is the court reporters. You won't be more than one of them lambs, they fat enough for the slaughter. If you don't pull your weight and draw your water for our daughters, how a kid without a gun become a threat to cops where they let him shot? Hoping his head'll pop and that his breath will stop. We gotta be satisfied with waiting until we get the verdict. It's just perverted, no justice for the family or the kid they murdered. Martin on my arm with the struggle made me more Malcolm. Demon in the smoke, Kush burning like Ferguson. Fuck Obama and Don Lemon, nigga, the nerve in him. CNN, CNN, but they ain't seeing him. Tears of the tear gas, tears of the Elohim. BOE the priest, hit a pig with a prison shank. God got me copy, I ain't scared of a fucking tank. Glorious struggle, shout out my brother Tory Russell. When I die, die in the middle, bye bye, don't put a bullet hole in my spleen. The millennium, the pops, Indians, and no Zionists in my dreams. Don't kill me for that line, conceal me with flat lines. I don't believe in no laws, I don't believe in your God. It's your block for my black freedom, put a car bomb in your heart. Uh. Black child, ain't no love in this bitch. Feed your seed and get your chopper like the government did. P.O.E. Which side are you on? Get off the fence, son. Which side are you on? Get off the fence, son. Which side are you on? Who stands to defend us? If you ain't with us, you against us. Which side are you on? Get off the fence, son. Which side are you on? Get off the fence, son. Which side are you on? Who stands to defend us? If you ain't with us, you against us. Which side are you on?
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. For the last few minutes of the show, we are going to talk to our guest, Ashoka Jegru, friend of mine, journalist, who's been covering movements, protest movements for pretty much as long as I've known you. Uh-huh. And you have some really interesting insight on kind of what is happening right now. So I want to, first, we talked a little bit about the president's response. I'm more concerned about what you know about what happened in Virginia. I know you weren't necessarily there, but you have a lot of contacts with people that were. So what are we not hearing about what happened in Charlottesville? Um, well, I have a lot of friends who were injured in that car attack as well. I have friends who just came up, you know, with canes and stuff like that, having hospital bills, quite frankly. Um, I mean, one of the things that you don't hear about, I guess, is um, just the level of violence on the side of the damn the fascists. I mean, uh, uh, this equivocating, the both sides stuff, really permeates also like centrists and liberals as well. Mm-hmm. This idea that, well, these anti-fascists are out there as well provoking these right-wingers. They're, they're violent all on their own, trust mm-hmm. me. They, if, whether, they, whether you're there or not, they're going to be violent and they're going to like advocate for further violence in the future what these rallies are all about you know planning for future events where they're going to be violent uh and so these need to be stamped out very when they're at their smallest and weakest right now they need to be stamped out Mm. um and and also the people who are out there are leftists they're not liberal i heard bill maher on his show talking about us when he was talking about the counterpart he liberals like him weren't out there Mm -hmm. it was people from you know dsa Communists, socialists, anarchists, Black Lives Matter protesters, people who are considered radical, who are often trashed in the media, in the mainstream media, they were out there defending our freedoms, quite frankly. This idea, because it's something that really kind of came out in the last election, because a lot of people didn't understand what the difference between leftist and liberal and kind of what those distinctions mean. What, From your perspective, what do those distinctions mean? Um, well, a liberal is pretty much someone who wants to keep the system as it is as much as possible while changing as little as possible uh, in order to make it seem like it's all good, pretty much. Well, so um, and, and a leftist is somebody who's opposed to capitalism, mm-hmm. first and foremost. If you want to overthrow capitalism, I think that puts you squarely on the left as opposed to a liberal who wants to just like put window dressings on on the current system, the current status quo. So it's this idea that we're either going to, you know, the, there's this, we're going to try this like piecemeal change or yeah. we're going to deconstruct the whole system. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, people like, I mean, people like Hillary Clinton, for example, mm-hmm. or the, the Democratic Party, quite frankly, the whole Democratic yeah. Party is just liberal, yeah. just liberalism personified pretty much. So why is that idea that kind of... Uh, and they weren't out in the streets. They're, they're not in the streets. That very like blase type of belief about what's happening now why is that detrimental why is that harmful to these progressive movements or to you know our liberation the idea of our liberation as marginalized people why is liberal liberalism a danger uh well as you can see the failure of the liberals has led to a fascist movement taking power in the damn country and um i mean their failures to address the real problems that people face have pushed people to the right uh I mean, if you talk to all these right wingers and stuff like that, the people they hate most are the so-called SJWs. And in their head, we're all liberals, all the leftists. We're all like, you know, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi or whatever in their heads. We're all like that. We all just want, you know, just little piecemeal changes and they, we don't care, care about poor people or whatever. Whereas if we had a real like left wing movement in this country uh, that could address like real systemic problems, 
I think a lot of these people would not have gravitated to the right the way they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, you know, once they're in there, they pretty much the racism, the, the xenophobia kind of just saturates into them and become Nazis in no time. I mean, it's, it's pretty much the failure of these liberals mm-hmm. that has caused the rise of somebody like Donald Trump. I think that for for me, you look at the party and you, you there was what was said, what was like, oh, they're trying to do this. And there was what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And we realized that what gets said is does not really gel with what actually happens. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that this is we can get what we want out of our current political system? Do you see that possibility or do you absolutely not? And if so, what does it take for us to get what we need and what we want? Um, I mean, this current political system is is trash, quite frankly. <laughs> you know how I feel about this. I'm a radical. Uh, I think we need to overthrow the state, overthrow capitalism, overthrow the myriad of oppressive hierarchies that exist in society that make up this society, quite mm-hmm. frankly. White supremacy, heteronormativity, uh, cis-normativity, all, mm-hmm. these, all these oppressive hierarchies reinforce each other and support each other, and they are what this society is, the status quo is. And we need to dismantle all of these hierarchies in order to get liberation pretty much in order to get you know what we want in order so we don't you know have people dying in the streets because they can't afford health care or people being brutalized by police forces just because they're black or brown or people being thrown out of the country just because they crossed some imaginary line and they didn't get the right papers for it or something like that that all of these things can be given like little Mm band-aids under the current system but they can't truly be solved under this current system in my opinion do you think that there's even a desire to solve them from well, certain parts of the system? Definitely not. I mean, the Democratic establishment is uh, an epitome of not wanting to really solve problems, but just want to keep themselves in power. I think sometimes they want to, like, perpetuate some of these problems in order to present a bullshit. Oh, can I say it? You can say it. Uh, a BS, a BS <laughs> solution. I mean, uh I mean, 20, 10, 20 years ago, the Clintons were talking about, you know, we can be got to be tough on crime and mm-hmm. super predators and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And just when the, you know, when, when that, when you can't use that anymore, that kind of rhetoric anymore, they'll change it just like that, just like that, just based on, you know, what the, what the, the, the polls say, the stats say, whatever. Um, they're not out to solve problems. They're out to keep their positions of power and make you think they're out there looking out for you. But like Malcolm said, they're they're foxes pretty much, and the Republicans are wolves. The only reason they're there is make it look like they're smiling when they're showing their teeth, but they're going to bite you just the same. What are some of the groups that are doing this work that people should be paying more attention to? You know, we've got a lot of visibility to white supremacist groups. I feel like they've been rattling off names and talking about names. But what are some of these groups that are working within this, you know, whatever, now this umbrella that they've put people under, this anti-fascist umbrella? But what are some of these groups that are actually doing this work to change this system or break the system down? Oh, well, the, the groups that I saw that, go, that I know personally that went down to Charlottesville here in New York uh, were groups like Black Lives Matter, Matter Greater New York went down there, where the Workers' World Party is a communist party here. Um, NYC shut it down, which is an anti-police brutality led by people of color group. Um, just mostly, you know, lefty groups like that uh, were down there. The groups that, you know, get shitted on mostly by the, the mainstream press around here get called radicals, fringe or whatever. They're down there. They're the ones actually doing the work on the streets, mm-hmm. fighting fascism and also stuff here like Swipe It Forward. Uh, helping people get on the train or, you know, doing court support when, you know, when people get out of court, giving them food, giving them cigarettes, giving them access to a lawyer, telling them where they can go to get a lawyer, 
real stuff to meet people's concrete needs, serving the people. Um, those are the groups that are really doing it. I think. One thing that you talked about earlier, and I want to ask before we go, we only have a couple of minutes left, that idea of violence and how it gets miscategorized. And mm. you think, you know, one of the arguments from the left that I hear all the time is that you can't, you know, we, if we want change, we have to do it positively. We have to do it without violence. And, and I just think like that has never happened in the course ahistorical, of history. Totally ahistorical. Yeah. How do we change that narrative? Is there a way that quickly that we can, we can start changing that narrative because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, just letting people frame it in terms of violence is a mistake to, to begin with. I think, I mean, Angela Davis had a great, like, you know, um, reply to somebody asking her about, you know, the black power movements, violence on their side or whatever. I mean, you're asking the wrong side about violence. I mean, the, the the fascists are the violent ones. They want to commit genocide. They want to, like, mass kick people out of this country, which will cause death and destruction and misery. I mean, you're at, when you frame it as violence, you're missing the point, and you're, you're losing the context. When you fight against fascism, I mean, it, that's a different kind of violence than when you, like, Throwing someone in the camp. Those we, are very different things. We had a war. We literally had a global war. Yeah, exactly. We will glorify the Allied powers, even though they were violent as hell. Mm. But then today, if you fight, if you punch a Nazi, then you're violent, quote unquote. I, I don't understand it. I hope yeah. we figure out how we can reconcile and actually move forward to help the people that need help, because this is yeah. really about people that need help. Thank you thank so you. much, Asuka, for joining us. Thank you, Violet, as always. And thank you all for listening to Objection to the Rule. We'll be back next week with more resistance right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Bye, everyone. Bye.